Uh, hi, my name is Anthony Damari, and I beat the often path by focusing a lot of time and effort where other people weren't looking, specifically uh, trying to connect the maritime world and community that sort of really is a lifebred of the way the world works today, even though many people don't think about it, in the technology industry, which is often and I think largely regarded as pervasive and something that is a huge part of our lives now, but very few people have been able to put those two things together. And then I think a lot of the things that have happened really well in my life is because I was in a position where I could quickly walk through a door when it opened. And oftentimes those doors don't stay open for very, very long. And I think most people get the opportunity to walk through some doors and they often don't walk through them. And so for me, that's how I beat the often path. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. On the show, we celebrate unique and inspiring success stories that help us think outside the box in our lives and careers. Joining me today is Anthony Damari, the CEO and co-founder of Bedrock Ocean Exploration, a vertically integrated ocean exploration company that's built proprietary robotics and software to explore the oceans quickly and cheaply. Basically, none of the world's seafloor is mapped, and this knowledge has far-reaching implications for weather predictions, global shipping, and so many other things that are vital to our survival. Learn the multiple businesses and models Anthony has pursued in his career, and how he's gotten millions in funding so far and wound up to be named under Forbes 30 Under 30. Bedrock has been featured in Fast Company, TechCrunch, CNN, CNBC, and more. And when you hear this man speak, I think you'll know why. So here's Anthony Damari. I have to say, I surely can't be the first person who has publicly acknowledged this, but do you think it's a coincidence that your last name is Damari and not DiCello? <laughs> like, I, surely you know, that's been noted quit. thousands of times before, right? It, it, it has been noted. Uh, people like the story. Uh, I think... I think part of it is I grew up in a very sort of salty Italian family. And so I have sort of, it's been sort of ingrained in me in a long time. And actually, interestingly enough, I sort of grew up learning that the, uh, the maritime world is actually quite uh, like evil and like will destroy you. Um, and by my great, great grandfather ran a, a lobster fishing business in Boston that ended up going to zero and it sort of ruined the whole family, broke everything up. And, and so I grew up in the like aftermath of, of that. And uh, so, so actually I sort of found my way back to the ocean through, a, again, my own interests as a human being, not necessarily because I was pushed into this space. Um, I just became personally obsessed and sort of found myself like, I enjoyed a day out on the water better than I did on land. Stuff like that um, started happening a lot more as I think from the age of like 14 onward, I started realizing like, this is a better way to live life and I'm personally happier doing it. So I don't know, you know, coincidence maybe. Um, but it certainly has helped, I think, dealing with a lot of the, uh, let's call it like the larger entrenched um, either families or companies uh, because they, they sort of know that, that for all intents, this is going to sound corny, but like that the, there's literally, you know, the oceans in my blood and all this stuff. And weirdly enough, that actually has gone a long way and particularly in, relationship building and sales conversations where, you know, they don't necessarily know you. They, they kind of look down on tech. Like they think tech is actually in many ways um, something that might, you know, be out to get them. Um, and I think you can sort of look at the technology landscape right now and it doesn't take a lot to sort of understand why a lot of people feel that way. Um, so yeah, so maybe coincidence. I don't know. Yeah. We'll just make sure, uh, <laughs> make sure you secure the rights because that will be the next Pixar film. I can tell already. 
It's kind of like Coco, but for the sea. Like, and we never go out to the sea. Never, ever. Not since I mean, great grandma's yeah, <laughs> fishing business went out. The, Lobster business went out the door. So uh, we get a sea shanty, right? Yeah, and yeah. You are yeah, in yeah, the right yeah, place yeah. at the right time in the right generation. But, but no, I must go out to the sea, Grandpa. Uh, uh, anyways, but no, <laughs> let's get back on track here. We could go, we could go on a hard tangent. On we could just one, go uh, just super deep and then say, forget, forget yeah, all the technical yeah. stuff. Uh, but yeah, that is yeah. interesting that I, when I said that as a throwaway, of course, I wasn't aware that there actually is a backstory or that it might've benefited you. But now that you mention it, it does seem like there is, I guess you could say a traditionalist community or it goes way back and something that people who aren't a part of that culture probably don't know myself Included, even though I'm a quarter Italian by genetics, uh, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, about as far from an ocean as a human can possibly be. So, yeah, I have you're lucky no you get relationship a lake, right? to the sea. Yeah, I get on a yeah. boat that's a hundred yards away from the shore, and I'm already panicking and thinking, like, I, I can't swim back. This is it's game over. There's a, yep. a, a a light breeze. It's game over. Um, but you talk about a couple things in your intro, so. One of them is, of course, marrying technology to other things, which is a theme of this show and just life in general right now. A lot of successful people are marrying technology and data in whatever form that is to some other industry where it didn't have those things. That's a theme that we've generally seen as a model for success, as entrepreneurship. But the other thing that you mentioned I want to touch on because you said going through a door while they're open – I cannot express enough how much I believe that to be true. Um, I believe that there are these waves that come. And I I have nothing of the success that, that you have in that regard. But I have built a couple of startups. And as a marketer, I've worked with these things. And I, I've seen the way that you think you can force something, but you just can't. And then there are these greater forces, these macroeconomic forces that happen. And when you're in that one... Like, I built a very large dance music blog at the exact right time with college buddies, and it was 2010, 11, and that was, I've always loved dance music since I was 10 years old, 1996, you know, I was into it, but then the world changed, and suddenly when Avicii was getting pop, all that stuff changed in the world, yeah. and then EDM became this yeah. trend, and then the dance blog took off. So there was this door and we walked through it and it became really successful. But if you tried to do that today, it just wouldn't work. There's a million out there. So I'm kind of curious how how you found yourself doing both of those things. How did you, A, make this transition into tech from, uh, what did you say, a naval background? Um, or And yeah. how what doors opened and how did you know they were open? Um, wow, okay. Um, let's, I guess... So one, congratulations on all the success. Like I many actually was a frequenter of many of the, many of the, but like many of the, there was only like three or four of them. So there was a likely chance that I actually was, I was reading some of those blogs. Oh, nice. uh, so uh, yeah, yeah, totally. I, that was, that was very much a part of my like college um, experience. So that's one thing. And so congratulations. Second, um, I think one, I tend to naturally gravitate toward enormous weird, strange problems. And so when I started, you know, I was, I, I was a mechanical engineering degree. And then I, you know, through a, a strange series of events, ended up at a, a naval architecture firm in New York City. And I was working on commercial ships and ferries and pleasure yachts and pleasure crafts and all these different things. And I was sort of getting this deep, um, pretty immersive learning experience about how you know, 
ships were put together and the systems you need to connect to make a ship do what a ship does. And I was, you know, uh, when I was doing, I, I vividly remember this, I was doing the, the CAD on a bridge system of a, of a ship. And I, and I realized that like all of the different systems that you would assume would be connected because you would assume the information from one would help the other one do what it does better. Meaning like, for example, a weather system, you would assume that would connect to the autopilot because in shipping, you know, weather has a demonstrable effect on the economics of any voyage as well as the safety of the crew. Absolutely. And so I was like, what the hell's going on here? This yeah. is a top of the line bridge system. And so I think that was one of those things where I was like, why is nobody else seeing this door open? And at the same time, I had this sort of direct connection to um, to another entrepreneur in New York City named Bree Pettis, who had just sold MakerBot at the time. And so I was sort of, I was had personal projects that I wanted to get 3D printed. And he said, listen, you know, I, you can come use my basically workshop and 3D print things on the weekends, whenever you want, as much as you want. And I was like, wait, really? Like this is thousands of dollars, but I was poor. I was poor, broke, student loans, the whole thing. And I just showed up and I started printing stuff. And he was like, you're actually going to take me up on that. I'm like, who wouldn't take you up on that? Sure. Um, and it turns out many people had not taken him up on that. And so by being around him, who had just sort of sold one of the best technology companies in New York City, and just frankly being like a, a an idol to me growing up or learning about mechanical engineering and all of the 3D printing movements that were happening. And I was obsessed with that. And then to then have one, the invitation to just do that work and then getting access to him, I had this maritime thing that I was doing for, you know, to pay the bills. Um, and then I had also access to this very successful technology entrepreneur who is literally seeing my own work happen in his space. Again, two things that alone are unlikely to happen. Just by um, the way. Let alone like, just like, oh, yeah, hey, like let alone go. take thousands of dollars worth of 3D printing and just do it for free. Wow. And I was like, cool, I'm going to build some hydrofoils. And he was like, <laughs> okay. what? And I'm like, totally. And I was like, all right, cool. So I started printing these like massive hydrofoil projects. And he, he started asking more questions about sort of what I had doodling in my head. And I was like, wow, there's this, it's like obvious problem. Um, the maritime world has no idea what's going on in the tech world. And the tech world has absolutely no idea what's going on in the maritime world. And by association, anybody that has the technology skill sets, you know, in Google and, you know, I, you name it, right? Any large fang or even just any of the large startups at the time, they've got no access or understanding of how that world works. And similarly, those people have no idea what goes on in the technology company. So their idea of software is like writing C++ that like sits on a machine and is like never updated again for 30 years. Whereas technology is saying like, you know, we deploy every day, new changes, new updates, rapid, rapid iteration, like a completely different mindset. So you had engineers over here, not understanding this, engineering's over here, not even understanding why they would even operate like that, let alone how they would begin to even work in a company like that, let alone work with a company like that. And I had this unique, like, I'm looking one way and I'm looking the other way. And I'm like, oh, 
there, now we're talking about something really, really big. And so if the hypothesis is shipping companies don't have access to all of this different data, that means there's no system that has access to all of that data, which means that there is an inherent inefficiency in the way every single ship globally moves around the world. And it's very hard for the companies to know if they're being efficient or not because they don't have access to the information. Similarly, on the tech side, we're seeing this boom of autonomous vehicles. We're seeing all of these systems starting to come into play where like all of a sudden there's open libraries for machine learning and computer vision and massive data crunching. And AWS was really just starting to like absolutely take off at like levels that we, you know, some people probably definitely predicted. Um, most of the people were sort of astonished, I think, to see the proliferation of, you know, web 2.0 and whatever happened there. And, and then it was sort of just like, well, how do we just put these things together? And I really believe it was like, this opportunity window was open, I don't know, maybe six months at best. Wow. And so in that period of like, and then a flood of other companies came sort of like a year later, but it was a little, it was like arguably a little too late. Um, and it was sort of after I think Nautilus had, had gotten its sort of foot in the door and then they realized, oh, actually that story makes a lot of sense. But again, then you had a bunch of maritime people trying to go to the tech world. You had a bunch of tech people trying to go into the maritime world and very few that understood both languages. Um, and so that was a really, that was like my first foray into all of this. And I think it sort of plays well into the question you were asking. So that's, that's I mean, probably way too much detail on exactly how it all happened, but that's that's literally what happened. Well, you've got a bunch of projects under personal website from robotic sea craft, I guess. Nautilus came before Bedrock. And Nautilus, if I'm not mistaken, that was just primarily aimed at shipping, which is the massive thing, before yep. you decided to get into ocean floor mapping, which is the newest thing, which is Bedrock. Um, Correct. Do you think, I mean, you mentioned that people weren't aware of this. So what is the time frame on this? When were you working on Nautilus? What what was that window in time? Um, I started the, I think I started thinking about it in like late 2014. 14, it really developed into a solidified idea and concept that I think one could reasonably execute in like close to late 2015. And then all of the stars kind of started aligning in 2016. And that's when it was like, okay, door is very open. I've got probably capital lined up. I've got, you know, I just need someone to sort of uh, imagine walking in the door with a Greek billionaire who owns 50 ships worth over a billion dollars alone. And you're this young person who knows their language so you can communicate with them, but they had been burned by technology before. And so you need, you really needed a partner there to like sit down and be like, no, I know how to build good technology. And so that was ended up how I, I ended up meeting Brian, my co-founder then, and we sort of came together um, and at the exact same time, there was a Greek, um, shipping, uh, like multi-generational Greek shipping family in New York. Uh, we went out for breakfast and ended up just saying like, listen, I have all these pieces together. I just need to understand the problem more. Like one, is this a problem? Two, does this sound reasonable? And three, would you, would you buy it? Um, and I literally, I had like a PDF at the time of what I thought would sort of 
do it. And I sort of like put it on the table. And I was like, what if you had that every day on a screen in a web browser? And I'm like, oh my God, this is great. This is perfect. Um, and that was, that was like the catalyst. And I was like, all right, we're on. And very quickly raised a little bit of money. Again, in that time, you know, I thought $2 million was a lot of money and went a long way. And in today's environment, that's, you know, a pre-seed at best. Um, and yeah, it's just been really, it's been really, that was the catalyst of it all. Um, Amazing. I'm sure I answered your question there. Um, yeah, yeah, that was, no, the, that was the, that was the first time frame. Um, and then, God, I don't know. I've been dreaming about the idea of bedrock probably since I was a little kid, but like, really? Totally. Okay. Oh my God. I mean, so, so but more like the general concept of sea exploration, yeah. I assume at that point. Well, so it was interesting at Nautilus, we were trying to, so one of the largest impacts on just general ship efficiency, if you're looking at a single ship on a single voyage, one of the largest impacts can be weather. And um, for those that don't know, um, marine weather prediction is terrible. Like it's very, and you think it's bad now with all the, you know, localized weather models breaking and random storms popping out of nowhere. It's way worse on the ocean. Like nobody has any idea what the hell the weather's going to do. They try really hard. They're wrong very often. And so we were saying like, there's got to be like a data first approach or a better way to do marine data. So we brought in some MIT meteorologists and we had them do a lunch and learn at Nautilus. And they were like, yeah, the biggest problem is we just don't understand the shape of the sea floor. So we don't even know the bounding box of how to like let the supercomputers try to model energy movement around the ocean, which actually affects then how weather forms out at sea and usually comes then on land. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, so you're telling me there's like this fundamental blocker of we don't understand what the seafloor shape is. And that is a main reason why we can't so predict like, oh, weather over the ocean. Like gifting you this incredible I mean, piece of at the time, firsthand knowledge. I, I, I kind of, I didn't realize it at the time, but yes, they kind of had. Um, and even, even then it was like, well, we can't solve that problem. Like, you know, yeah, we have, we have a little bit of data from the depth sounder on a ship, but the depth sounder is only rated to like a hundred meters. So the second the ship Useless. gets, cause it doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be any more than that. Like, and so we were like, oh, shit, like, all right, I can't, we, we can't solve that problem. So I hope someone else solves that problem soon. And we, we, you know, I think that was always something that was interesting, but that was the catalyst that I thought about when starting bedrock is originally just, I knew by association from very smart people that the reason or one of the main blockers to us having a better weather model, which I think is now even heightened in importance, um, is because we actually don't understand the shape of the seafloor. Now, I had no idea about the commercial opportunity that existed by, you know, mapping the seafloor, but I knew that that was a problem that if solved, someone in the future would likely pay a lot of money for. So that was sort of the initial like, okay, it's probably worth starting to just look into this for fun. Just, just to start. And I would say that started happening in late 2018. And then I called up my now co-founder, uh, Charles, um, who was at the time he had like just left SpaceX, but he was running the, uh, avionics platform for, uh, SpaceX crew dragon. So all of the guidance systems that got that spacecraft to, to dock with the ISS and, release from uh the dragon rocket that was all 
that was all him amazing and so i was like yeah and before that he had done manned submersibles so he had done submarines he had done auvs he'd done exoskeletons for darpa and sri and like a true generalist roboticist with autonomy experience and so Incredible. i'm just i'm sitting here and i'm like it's one of those things where we met in the embarcadero at a diner and like stayed there for two hours talking about you know problems we cared about and I sort of put him aside and said, you know what? Okay. Like one day I'm going to stay in touch with him and one day we might do something. And then, um, the opportunity kind of came along to try and start to look at the ocean mapping problem for me. And I, he was the first person I called and was just like nights and weekends. You want to try and like crack this one? <laughs> and it was like, he was like, absolutely like a hundred percent. Yes. Um, he ended up then going to work with a, autonomous uh airplane company so really trying to make airplanes autonomous like fully autonomous um and and so we were nights and weekends throughout all of most of 2019 i had a, i had much more time because i had left nautilus at the time so i had tons of time to explore and that really was the beginning of of how bedrock sort of came to be and you know we can dig into whatever parts you want from there but that's sure. kind of the gist well, it's just a fascinating case study in working your way backwards and also as you dig into one problem, uncovering other problems that lead you to perhaps a better or the real quote unquote problem. And I think for the average person, it makes total sense that they're not that they haven't been super aware of the marriage of tech and um, the maritime world. Totally. Because, but the last few years. Clearly, some part of that has changed when you go into an Ikea and there's nothing on the shelves. You say, why not? Because there's no shipping. And lest we forget, amidst all of the chaos and the many newsworthy events that have happened in the last few years, there was that time where in the Suez Canal, one single ship blocked all of the traffic. People said, oh, we don't know when this is ever going to be fixed. Could be weeks, could be months. And by the way, there's a backlog of ships. And at the time that all of that was happening, I was visiting my mom down in Huntington Beach. And Huntington Beach is right next to a giant port. And looking on the beach, you could just see massive container ships backed up as far as the eye could see. And you knew that based on how far away they were, how freaking massive each one of these things is. And I was just doing a little napkin math in my head and thinking how many items are right here in my view stacked up that we can think about and of course these things are not going to be on the shelves whatever's in them is not coming here and it's not coming here anytime soon so i think we have these little bits and pieces as lay people of understanding oh this is a problem and all of these geopolitical strategists they say shipping lanes and all this is going to be a bigger problem in the future so it's just very, I think you were absolutely right, at least by coincidence as well, that a few of these other things would shine a spotlight on that industry, at least temporarily. Probably by now people have forgotten all about it and they're like, yeah, Ikea's stocked again, more or less. Well, it's almost it's almost Christmas time, so it's about to become it's front about, and center again. And yeah. I mean, and oil and all. without a doubt, yeah. yeah, all the stuff is going to start piling in. I was, I was literally, I was just with my mother. And I was telling her, buy all your Christmas gifts early this year because we're going to run out of electronics. And even if they have them, they're going to be stuck on a ship. There's going to be a problem with supply. So think about it like the arteries of the world just shrunk. And now there's more people that want more stuff 
and we have global supply chain shortages, both of the electronic components as well as how to move them. And so it's, it's really funny, like very much, um, you know, it was, it was very, very much something that I think like this will be a really interesting Christmas season. Yeah. Um, a lot of the effects are about to all hit all at the same time and stress test the system in a way that it, I don't think is ready for, mm. but who knows? It Maybe reminds it me, together. I don't know. when I was a kid growing up, there was the Denver Natural History Museum, and there was a little exhibit of science called Hall of Life, where you could see all of these human processes. Very cool for a kid. And they would show, speaking of the arteries of the world, a human body with arteries. And they say, this is blood flowing in a normal body. Now, yep. here is a cigarette smoker who smokes a cigarette a day, and they're constricted. And then here's somebody who smokes a pack a day, and it's down to a single lane. I don't think people realize how vulnerable and how thin the shipping arteries actually are. When a single ship can go sideways, and like we got no other ideas. There's literally nothing like, else we can do. It was our... And, so there, and we talk about the weather. Month and, the and a half around Cape Horn, right? <laughs> it's, it's and then like, that's okay. God knows how much extra fuel, and then the economics yeah. of the whole thing change because for you to get that thing for twenty four ninety nine from Alibaba or from Amazon, it relies on all of these things working exactly as intended all the time. A single hiccup throws the economics off balance. So totally. you started there, but you left that company. Although it still exists, right? Nautilus is still out in the world. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's cool. it's 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 a global company now. Um, Makes sense. And so they have presence in many other. Yeah. And so um, you know, a massive massive props to the team there, and like super proud of what I was able to sort of pass on to to Matt, who was one of the second hires at Nautilus and is now the CEO. And so yeah, only incredible things to say about what they've been able to continue to build and expand from there. So. That was, that was a great, you know, I learned a lot during that experience. Um, and, uh, but it did open up this other opportunity, right? And one, I got to learn, personally grow. I think that's another big thing that I think is important is the first time you do anything like that. Well, I mean, you don't, you don't know what you're doing. You know? I mean, you know this, right? You don't know what you're, <laughs> you don't really know what you're doing. Um, and so it's nice to have a, a first pass experience um, and just now I got to, now I got to reset, right? And I got to learn a bunch from that first experience and then apply those learnings now to having something even, even more important now and, and something that people know even less about because there's literally physically no information about many parts of the ocean that have ever been collected um let I alone saw the stats on like your a website. known part you said yeah. it's five percent right there, there you have a little chart it's on like, your website that says something like five percent has been mapped 70 percent well of, of the earth what is 70 percent is water your little chart says 30 percent is land yeah and only five percent has been mapped with any resolution it, whatsoever and that's on one data set so okay. that's like a, this is a really important thing is like if if you use bedrock's definition of mapped or at least a commercially acceptable version of the word mapped it's probably on the order of magnitude of like less than 0.001% to give you a sense of just how little and i mean data sets that would matter are like you know right now they consider mapped like just understanding the shape that's that's one thing that they think about there's no imaging requirements there's no uh, magnetic sort of interference or um, sort of need to know where there are metallic objects. There's 
And this could be both applied to like man-made objects as well as just understanding what the substrate on the seafloor is. And then even more important is like kind of the first couple layers of the seafloor because this affects how things might move. And that's another big thing is like, sure, we knew what the ocean looked like in 1982 there, but I bet you in some parts that it's almost definitely not like that anymore. And so we don't know what's been uncovered, what's there, what's not there. And, and people, it, it's like hard to make the same comparison to land because land really, unless there's a landslide or an earthquake or some massive erosion event, things don't really change. Like, you know, with the exception of maybe like the Sahara desert, which does change. Um, but that is a better model for thinking about the seafloor than land, like true land. Um, and so, yeah, we say that, but I think the problem is actually much larger. Like if you don't have an ocean map once a year, then you really don't know you can't say with much certainty, I, I would say, um, that you actually understand what's really going on there. And now that we're putting all this critical infrastructure out into the ocean, I think that will continue to exist. And as we are going to, I think, inevitably need to use the natural things that the ocean already does, but maybe we need to amp it up because, again, humans have kind of fucked things up a little bit. And have it they? turns out we have this amazing, you know, I... Who, what, who am I to say? Like, I, I don't know what economic indicator you want to look at, but, you know, I, I think, we're fine. you know, I don't think things are, yeah, we're fine. It's Everything's fine. fine. You know, burning, burning don't dog, worry and, about uh, it. you know, the meme. Yeah. So I, I just, I just think this is another one of those like obvious ones that, you know, 10 years from now, it will be astonishing that at this point we actually didn't really have what I would consider to be any reasonable percentage, um, like mapped in resolutions that that allow us to make actionable decisions and not just like, it looks like there's a large ridge there, which is kind of like what we can do now. Mm. Um, and it's so there's this fascinating thing, I think that will happen or moment where once people start realizing that um, this is actually an accessible data set, everything from the way that the financial markets look at this, the insurance markets look at this, the infrastructure that we can build and actually take advantage of some of the, I don't know. It just seems like one of these, like, again, someone just has to go and, and do it. And like, you know, the, the survey market today is about $7 billion. That's like the size of the rocket launch industry. And how many billions of dollars have we pumped into that? Why? There's a capital misallocation that seems to have happened. Um, and, and, you know, maybe you could say there's no companies that were doing it or whatever, right? All sorts of stuff. But um, I, I, it, baff, it just baffles me that, that, you know, this isn't like a, one of those things that a lot of smart people would have already tried to go do at, at, a, at a sizable planetary level scale. And I think that's another challenge to this space in general is like you have to think and planetary scale. And that's just really hard to do. Um, and then bring it back to reality and say, well, I have to, op I have to operate at this local level scale right now, but I need to also make sure that I'm ready for the planetary planetary level thinking, because we're going to have to figure out new supply chains because there'll be more sonars built than ever before. Um, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that sort of a problem um, is sort of the way you have to start thinking pretty early on far earlier than I think most hardware startups end up having to, because this is such a new space and no one's ever done it before. So, you know, yeah. we might be one of the largest purchases of sonars in the world.
not too soon from now. Well, you do get the um, sense, right? That <clears throat> you get the sense that we have been taking this for granted as, a, as, totally. a, you know, we got so used to things just being this way, but we've sort of forgotten why they are this way and the rise of this system. Because a hundred years ago, it wasn't like this. It's only relatively recently that all of this interconnected global economy has sprung up and in such a way. And now we just assume that all of these things are safe, that they're secure, that everything's going to get where it's going, even though the demand is higher than ever and many of the infrastructure so has not changed. So I'm curious, the infrastructure that you're building, so you, you've got obviously a submersible vehicle that is able to go underwater and map things, but are you putting in place more permanent infrastructure when you find area? Because you said if, if you have to do this once a year, how many vehicles would it take to not still end up at the same percentage of that you're chasing your own tail? Sure. Um, so I think the, the first thing to say is, so we're, we're, a, we're actually a data company, right? At the end of the day, we, yes, we have submersibles. Yes, we build cloud software that allows that data to be readily available, accessible and all these things. But like, we're not selling, we're not selling SaaS and we're not selling the robots, but these two things together have allowed us to put together a unique and proprietary data product um, that allows other people that are infrastructure companies or energy companies or renewable energy companies to then go and do the work that they need to do to put up this infrastructure much faster, much cheaper with a bit of a different business model. And I think, you know, if you take a look at sort of, I, I think many of the other chin, like tangential industries, maybe, you know, you could look at onshore infrastructure or whatever, maybe like, yes, like surveys get done and they get done with, you know, now drones, right? Like it's very easy now to do. The problem with the marine space is that nobody, um, no one has taken, you know, like in the space, in the space markets, they, they used to have these large satellites that cost tens of billions of dollars and, and then Planet Labs and Spire and a bunch of these other smaller startups started pioneering the small sat satellite concept. And you could put up a thousand satellites for the same price of, or even less than one of these monolithic satellites that NASA was sort of putting together. And nobody had, nobody has made that full transition in the ocean. And so particularly ones that were specifically designed to collect these data sets, and that's another kind of important part about what our strategy is, is that this, this is because we don't sell this vehicle to a Navy or to scientists or whatever, and we're actually just selling the data set itself. We got to design an entire system that is collected and optimized to collect these data sets exactly the way we want them to. And instead of saying, I have to make a modular robotic platform because this customer is going to want this and that customer is going to want that. And this one's going to want to tweak it a little way like this. And it, it leads to a system that is great or okay or meh at a ton of things, but is not excellent at one thing. And so our system is designed to be excellent at this one really hard thing. And that includes not just collecting the data, but being able to scale the system in a different way and speed than many other companies would. And so I, I believe you actually have to build the full stack to go do that. To your question about, you know, how many vehicles does it take? Like we're, we're just finishing um, the completion of our first assembly facility. 
So we are doing a lot of the assembly ourselves in-house and that vehicle or that assembly facility is designed to do about 10 to 15 vehicles a quarter. Mm. So by the end of next year, we should have anywhere between, you know, 40 to 50 vehicles. Um, in any given scenario, let's just say we're going to, for all intents and purposes, let's go with an offshore wind farm site. Let's say it's a hundred square kilometers and it's 15 kilometers from shore, something like that. Right. Um, we couldn't get away with putting anywhere between three to 10 vehicles in the water, you know, relatively from shore, let them transit out to the site slowly and they're on just a loop. So they come back to shore. We open up the vehicles. We swap out the batteries. There's a hard drive already in the battery case. You put it into the charging case. It starts immediately pulling the data right off of that thing. You put in a new battery, close it up. It does its recalibration set off. It goes again. We don't do anything. Um, and so when you consider that system and that capability set versus the way it's done today, which is huge ships, 30 to 60 people on board, only really one vehicle, maybe three, if you're lucky, if you're using that ship as a mothership for some off the shelf robotics, but now you're trying to piece together systems that were never meant to go together and you could do it. Um, it's just, you don't get the full control over all of the different aspects of the system you need to really dial in your solution to get that really high quality data that customers need and desire. And so, you know, you can get away with one vehicle, but that's not where things get interesting. Cause then you're like, Hey, not really any better than a ship at that point. It gets really interesting. We can think at a, at a fleet level and you can get three to four operators from, from bedrock out to a site in a day with, up to 10 vehicles if you have them and you can do an entire site like that in like less than a week and because the sonars on board are meant to be closer to the seafloor they don't have to be as loud and as powerful it also means that the frequencies we get to use literally frequencies like you know it's like think of it like audio like sound like speakers the frequencies we use are high enough above a level where marine mammals can hear them. So, you know, kind of like as we get older, we can't hear frequencies yeah. above a certain pitch. Sure. Marine mammals are the same way. And so if you're above that frequency, you're not damaging them. So it turns out we don't need environmental permits to go do the work either. So literally someone can call us up. We're there in like a day or two. We're mobilizing the fleet the day after that. We're out mapping a site close to shore and we're out of there within two weeks. And because every time that vehicle is coming back, we have access to land-based internet infrastructure, we get that data into the cloud immediately, and everybody has access to the information far ahead of time. So to go from something that normally would have taken 12 months of time between the permitting, getting the contracts in place, all of the work that needs to go into mobilizing all your equipment onto the site to then do the work, to then process it, to look at it, to get all the reviews from the environmental review firm, the archeological review firm, the government's gotta do a stamp of approval to make sure you didn't break any laws when you did that work because you're in a marine mammal protected area. To do all of that and shrink it into this like, now let's call it like one to three month process, depending on how big the site is and how far offshore it is. That's, that's game changing Massive. for yeah. anyone. Like you go from like a six year timeline to build an offshore wind farm where literally a bottleneck was how often you could do surveys to get to the next step of the development process. Well, now shifts the entire perspective on how quickly you could build something because 
oh, well, now I got the information I needed to move. I got all the approvals and I got the information I needed 12 months ahead of time. So that's a year right there on one survey. And imagine that multiple times over throughout the development process. And all of a sudden, you've taken a bottleneck and you've turned it into an accelerant mm. to the point where like companies may not even know how to move that fast kind of work. So they're not used to it, yeah. especially with the, yeah. And I, and I think if you look at the Inf uh, inflation reduction act that just got passed in the United States, there's a 30% tax credit that any renewable company gets for building an offshore wind farm before forget exactly the date in 2026. But now there's not only was there already existing pressures because time is money and these guys are already shedding a ton of money, but now you get a 30% coupon if you can get to construction before a certain date in 2026, and there's a global shortage of survey supply vessels globally, partly because of what's going on in Ukraine. So they are reallocating parts of the fleet to oil and gas exploration again, which is for better or worse, what's happening, which means as there's a growing number of sites globally, there's not a, you can't build ships very quickly. We're going to have 50 vehicles by the end of next year and are expecting to have up to thousands of vehicles within the next two to three years after that. Nobody will be able to scale a fleet of ships that fast. There aren't even enough shipyards in the world to do it. And so when you put all of those pieces together, you get this sort of beautiful, almost elegant, like worldly solution that you would have only gotten had you made all those previous decisions, which at the time, like 2019, people were like, no way. No way, like absolutely not. Like you're going to replace an $80 million ship with a, you know, a 200K bomb AUV that you're going to, oh, by the way, design yourself. And then COVID happened. Everyone's like, you got to be, <laughs> you got to be, you know, you got to be, like, I'm sorry. I don't get it. Like, I, I love the idea, but like, no way. Um, and, you know, that that's, that's literally, that was like the environment that we started this thing in. Whoa. Um, which, uh, yeah, it's, it's so looking back now, I'm like, um, but yes, that was, it that seems was like happened. there are a string of, I don't want to, well, sure. Lucky fortuitous breaks, good timing across the board at every moment of this, but also the last, I don't know, two minutes of you talking was one hell of a pitch. If this was shark tank, I would say, shut up and take my money at this point. I say exactly right. It makes perfect sense. And now we've got this other inflation reduction act, which is just icing on the cake. I think it would have already been fine, but this is just extra incentive, which is great. And you're in the right place at the right time. So I love the yeah, idea like that an individual company, they can contract you out. They say, we're going to send you here for a specific reason. Because again, with 0.01% of the ocean map, you could go anywhere at any time, but they're sending you to a specific area for a specific reason. And then that data just yep. goes towards the total pie. And then anybody with a subscription to what's called Mosaic, sorry, it might be, uh, they can access this. So it's adding to the global knowledge pool, but it's really localized for these people. They build their infrastructure in that area. And if they build a windmill farm, does that have some kind of survey data attached? If I build a windmill, does it have sonar in there? So they're keeping up to date with the mapping of that area for future years? So <laughs> remember I said the C4 moves all the time? Right, that's what I'm, so yeah. It so it turns out like you have to go back every single year and what we're trying to also create is because you let's at best right now you can do one survey a year most times it's once every other year because 
the other survey got delayed, there was a huge weather event, yeah, who knows, right? There's no real understanding right now of something of what we're calling a seafloor mobility risk profile for any given site. So imagine in some parts of the world, and particularly off the coast of the east coast of the United States, where you have a very flat, sandy, continental shelf, hurricane moves through there, everything's different. And I mean, like, everything is different. And, and you might have a sand dune that shows up in the middle of your wind farm. Maybe half your cables got exposed. So you bury your cables. I mean, literally physical cables that connect these wind farms, the electricity back to the grid. Maybe that gets exposed. And you don't want that. Like, that is not, a, that is not the cable that you want you know, anyone to be able to just go and see and touch and do something with, right? So you try to bury them in many cases. Um, but in a very dynamic shifting environment, you know, <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. that's a huge problem. That is a risk. That is, that is a, and it's hard to factor in that risk in different sites globally right now, because we have in many, in many cases, we don't even have one map, let alone, even if you had one map, you don't know the next map. So you don't know how it changes. And then maybe that is like 10 months after the hurricane went through, which is better than nothing. But you don't really know what happened between right after the hurricane in this now 10-month period of time. And so when you look at just what we can do today, purely limited by the technology, infrastructure, business models, bureaucracy around the way we do the work now, there is a really interesting future if you could do it like twice a year with marginal extra cost, but the you end up getting what we're calling like a 4D subsea data set. So you can start to see how it moves and shifts and changes at your particular site. And being able to mitigate against a massive environmental risk, which could take down the entire farm, and now you're just burning millions of dollars per day, right? It's, it's we're talking pl five plus, right? And to, every single day the site's down. And so you got to imagine if you could pay $2 million, $3 million, $4 million every other month or every six months, maybe to mitigate against maybe a hundred million dollar loss on a $5 billion project. These are real, like you're only expecting to make five to 6% on that infrastructure project. If every Every time that happens, and by the way, a great model for this, for better or worse, is, is what we learned when the Block Island wind farm was built. They're having tons of downtime problems because cables keep getting exposed, stuff gets snapped, turbines sort of move because the seafloor moves more than they thought it moved. And so if you even knew that ahead of time, you could have changed the financing structure as well as the operational plan of how you maintained that critical piece of infrastructure. And I think everybody in the industry, at least from what we're hearing, is totally on board, but there's no company that can actually service those sites the way. So we need to take the concept of a survey, which kind of is this like one-time thing into monitoring. And that is where the fleet size and the growth of the fleet and the operational efficiency of us as a company starts to really give us not just a competitive edge, but frankly, a completely differentiated product 
than anybody else. And so that's what we're really working towards. And that's one of the benefits of saying like, again, back in 2019, it's like, we didn't just think about how to build five of these things. We were thinking about how would you build a thousand of them and then work back to building one, knowing that the intention was to build thousands. And so that's another really interesting, like, at the time, it wasn't necessarily obvious that that would be like a really high valuable product. But by extension of believing in the longer hypothesis being that the, re- the reality is like the seafloor already, mo- already always moves and we know very little about it. It turns out that by extension now that as I, and you could have never predicted how many offshore wind projects were going to just pop up in the United States or globally. And here we are looking at every single country trying to find energy independence from a very select group of countries, one of them being, you know, Russia. And, and rightfully so, this makes sense now. Looking back, we probably should have diversified a lot earlier, but we didn't. Nope. And renewable energy we had the also chance. probably made a lot of sense. We had, yeah. I, again, I would have said long-term hypotheses. And I think there are companies out there that knew this, like Orsted, that got this really right really early. There's other companies out there like companies you wouldn't know, like CIP, just Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners. They they were really early in on this movement. And now they're the global leader in this space. And they have the ability to do things that other companies don't because they started 10 years ago. But no one in the United States did that. These are all these are all European companies, right? And so it's just interesting to now see that everyone's sort of like having this aha moment. Like, yeah, okay. Like I, I it's for funny better how or worse, works. I'm not here to yeah. It, yeah. I'm just going to stop talking at this point. But, no, it's, it's funny yeah, how it works. I yeah. think, that, and that is, I think, yeah. well, that transition is something that all smart people would do well to internalize because sometimes when you're really far ahead of the curve, you feel insane because you're not going to get that feedback from the world at large. Like you said, people thought we were crazy in 2019. And I think if you're really smart, you see things in advance. And you can have two people who disagree on a certain point, and that's the political climate of our world and our country today. But the beauty of science and what I've always loved about it is that who's going to be right? You have two people. We disagree. It's your point of view. It's my point of view. Yeah, but in 50 years, one of us is going to be right, and the other one is going to be proven wrong. And if you look at NASA or if you look at the European Space Administration, we talked a little bit about space. They sent a rocket out years ago. They slingshot it off three different planets and then it goes and it is dormant for 14 years and then it rendezvous with a comet flying through the universe at unfathomable speed then they wake it up at the exact right moment in time and it's where it needs to be not off by a fraction of a millimeter and then it triangulates itself around this comet asteroid whatever and then it lands on this thing and i think that's what science can do that's what data can do now, you got somebody else who's very loud and very aggressive, and he's got a YouTube channel, and he's got a podcast, but who's going to be right? That's the thing. So when people find themselves in the situation where they're forced to confront something, then they say, oh, now we have to act. But you said, yeah, we, we kind of knew this was coming. You just either didn't believe me, or you just willfully chose to ignore the evidence that was presented to you. I, th- I think the other point there, though, in, in defense of sort of where I think a lot of people get hung up, and I think this is a uh, this is a whole different topic to discuss, but it's around the incentives of how capital is deployed and the, the time horizon that one has to make a return to kind of feel fulfilled or successful or whatever it may be. 
Um, there are a couple of these problems out there that are just like, if you make the right bets in these things and you give it enough time, it just so happened Bedrock got very, very lucky that randomly in the middle of a pandemic, the world decided offshore wind and blew up. Couldn't have predicted that. I like you if you would have asked me in 2019, how's it like what's gonna go, like what's gonna happen? Things that I would not have said is, yep, on top of the fact that there'll be a global pandemic, we are also just going to decide that, like, we're going to build shit tons of renewable energy off the coast of every country that has oceanfront. I wouldn't have said that. Um, would I have said it probably would have started to grow? Yeah, um, because I thought it was, again, one of these inevitabilities. But, like, would I have expected the market expansion the way that we've seen it, you know, now in 2022? Absolutely not. Um, and so I think a lot of the question here for a lot of the capital allocators out there is like, well, when, how long can I wait? And even my fund might not even have the structure that allows us to wait. We do believe, we do believe in that. And so I, we're starting to see another trend, which is kind of amazing. There's a couple of very experienced um, venture capitalists out there that are starting to create longer return time horizons in their funds. And I think this is super smart. Um, because that doesn't put the pressure on them to return the capital in the same 10-year cycle that we're used to because there are some fundamental problems that we know are going to be huge. We know the, the company that solves that is going to do it, but they may need a little bit more time, and that's okay. That's actually totally fine because you're still going to get the you know 1,000x multiple that you want in the early rounds, and it's like we know that's going to be a thing. Um, and then it comes back to like, are you the right people and and whatever. But like, that's all the standard stuff for making investment in in the you know early stage high risk category, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a lot to fix beyond just like the inevitability of these problems are problems. I actually think, uh, you know, personally, I would love to see longer time horizon funds, and there are starting these ESG funds are starting to become a little bit more time. Yeah, we covered that a little bit earlier. Longer yeah. time horizon. Yeah. So. You know, I think there's there's like there's multiple different aspects of the problem, and it's not just that I think, you know, yeah, they're short sighted, but I also think like even some of the you know capital allocators out there that are that do have these like smaller time horizons, that's okay. There's going to be secondary markets for these things. Like if it works, if it really works, this is planetary level, right? It doesn't just start in the U.S. You're almost immediately playing at a global TAM. And and in many spaces, particularly the climate space, like this is pretty true for the companies that think on a planetary scale and not just like, okay, I'm going to help, you know, just this one little town be a decarbonization mecca, right? Which is great. Love that. That needs to happen. But I actually, I'm, I'm, I want to see more of the people thinking like, listen, I'm ready to help this do, I, I'm ready to scale within a reasonable amount of time because we need to. There is no option. You don't solve the problem unless you get to scale super quick. And yeah, quick might be five to seven years. And that means that monetization might come five to seven years out. But that's that was okay with software. Why why is it that much different in you know the climate space where you could say arguably there's larger markets than than we even can probably can conceive um, in many of these spaces. And maybe you get them wrong, maybe you get a couple wrong, but that's okay. Um, 
don't know. I don't know if you have opinions on this. I mean, yeah. you get to talk to tons of people. I do, like, and man, it's well, the most fascinating thing is that at this point. I, I do get to talk to tons of people and seeing the way that these things are connected, to be honest, it gives me goosebumps right now because I'm pulling a single thread here. And through that, I have gotten access to so many incredible people such as yourself. And I'm able to see these connections now. I talked to an ESG broker. I've talked to people who have experienced on different sides of this. And on the one hand, it's very exciting because like you said, people, investors, capital, they're starting to see that this is viable and they're starting to say, oh, it's not just some fringe thing. It's something that actually can generate the kind of returns that we're looking for. And they're starting to see it as a positive thing from purely financial terms, which which is excellent. But I think the other thing that you have done well, and I think perhaps, well, probably not intentionally, but you talk about this balance between short-term and long-term, and you have a long-term goal. And the long-term goal is what if we could map the entire seafloor? What if we could predict the weather patterns? What if we could do all of that? But at 0.01%, that is a very, very long-term goal, nigh impossible. However, you found something else in the short to mid-term range that will make this business be profitable in a certain industry. So you're not setting out just putting these things out and just let's just go exploring and see what we find. You say, no, in the short term, we're going to help these wind farms because that is the door that is open right now that we're going to run through. And that becomes a sort of insurance policy against to mitigate potentially massive losses for these. And to you, it's money in the door every other month, every quarter, every six months, every year. And you get to be profitable and generating income in that short midterm and then when that starts to scale, you will be able to make further inroads on your ultimate larger goal. So you had to kind of break down your big goal into something that was smaller and more bite-sized, but also that was profitable. And you had to crunch those numbers to come up with that as being the best solution. And now the market is more favorable than ever due to global demand, due to global perspectives, but also due to this very specific 30% tax windfall. So I, I right. think... What I hear from you, it just ticks all of those boxes of what to me sounds like a brilliant concept. And who am I? I'm just a random dude. I, I'm not a billionaire by any means, you know. But what I have been very privileged to see is just you get a sense of what works and why things work. And of course, there's survivorship bias. And you yourself are probably one of the greatest examples of that because you had such a specific background, such a specific degree. So, yes, it's easy for you to say, but it, it's a very unique path that has brought you to this point. However, there are patterns that are starting to emerge and there are patterns that I'm starting to see and there's patterns that are becoming clear of why things are working and everything that you describe just to me fits all of those models of something that is likely to work. And I think that is just super yeah, I cool. I mean thank that yeah, thank you. And like I I uh there was a crazy amount of work that went into thinking this through. It was sure. like, I am not a, I'm not a billionaire either. And so I have to, Yet. by extension, Charlie and I had to, Charlie and I had to find uh, a way, right? Cause we, it was not like we're, we weren't Elon, right? We couldn't self fund SpaceX with hundreds of millions of self funding until we could kind of get the rocket to, to launch and then land which is the way that that model works. So it was, you know, 15, 20 years of blood, sweat, and tears and a ton of capital that like, I, I probably 
there's no way I could have probably raised that money um, in that kind of way. And it is like, and so by almost by, I guess, restrictive, if you look at sort of the bounds that I had, the restrictions, the reasonable restrictions, and I'm not saying that like, it's the same, but I, I, there, you couldn't, I could, like, we couldn't spend 10 years going all in. Like we had to find a next sort of logical yeah. thing. And actually I think that's super healthy because now we have this, you know, in the last two years, our TAM went from seven, just in offshore wind, right? This was $7 billion across all surveying globally to now $30 billion in likely TAM just in offshore wind. And that is not including all of the other now tangential things that are becoming like increasingly more important. And so we're like, we're seeing this like exponential TAM growth. And like, yeah, there's a little bit of luck involved in that, but I think there's also a little bit of like, there was some early foresight. Um, For sure. Definitely from, you know, and so it's interesting to see and I think you can do this now in a couple of other areas, you know, whether, you know, you, you can look at any vertical that is associated with the climate space and like, you do have to sort of start to peek around, but it's not hard to find a couple of multi-billion dollar markets that you think are going to become much larger in the future, just by nature of what's happening out there. So, you know, finding the right teams and companies, sure, but you know, who knows? Um, so, you know, th th thank you for all the kind words there and, you know, really I good luck to the team. It, it goes out to the team. Like there's, a, there's an astonishing yeah. group of people behind Bedrock, and that's that's sort of what I, you know, like. There's no way that we'd be here without them, regardless of whatever the market's doing, right? So, right. Um, yeah, they're they're a special group of people. So, well, yeah, and I, I think I'm not trying to minimize at all by by mentioning the the factors because again, obviously the foresight is there, the intelligence is there. That's all you. That's all your team. And the ability to connect these dots, that's all you. But I think maybe the greatest strength there is to have the stick to to not get distracted and at a very basic Instagram meme worthy level to say you believed in yourself <laughs> enough to I mean, go through with this. And, you're, and I think you're going to reap craze, the rewards. Right? It's like, uh, you know, it was incredible, right? Like pandemic. So we start in January. We get a term sheet on March 2nd of 2020. Get out of here. We sign it. Sign it on days March before 9th. lockdown. Five days before lockdown. Sign the thing. And then I'm like, okay, world starts collapsing. Web3 starts taking off. I'm not, none of this is making any fucking sense to me, right? So like I'm sitting here being like, okay, cool. Markets are collapsing, but like infrastructure is counter cyclical. So we should be good. Like there is nothing that's going to stop us needing energy, right? We, we will need energy. That will always be a thing. Like we're, we're okay. And then you see web three, just go to web, which is by the way, not against web three. I just can't believe the amount of attention and capital that just poured there instead of all like maybe half of that capital going towards what I would call like Web3 is a problem. Right. Yeah, there's real stuff. Like pick up a, a, a Wall Street Journal, right? And like just open up a couple pages and sift through it and open up an economist. I can, I'll tell, like you could find 50 
massive fucking problems right now that we have no global solutions for. Um, why weren't, you know, to me, I'm like, that is way more important to get right than us understanding how to like transfer NFTs. Not to say that that's not profitable or something that will become an influential piece of technology or something that I deeply believe could be, I don't believe is proven it yet, but that's just my own personal belief is that Same. it's not really at an infrastructure stack yet. Hmm. It could be, and I'm glad people are working on it. However, is it because they were looking for a problem and didn't have one or didn't want to find one? Or is it, you know, it was just wild. And so we had everyone coming to us being like, you got to become a tokenization company. I'm like, no, like, this is not the point. The point, it, like, <laughs> right. we have a, we have this massive missing data set in the world and it's critical for all of our futures. We're going to go focus on that one. Right. And then like, if there's tokenization opportunities in the future, because that makes business sense, or that's an interesting financial mechanism we want to use to do certain things and we'll consider it, but that's a massive distraction against what we are trying to do. And so we, it was, it was a wild, I mean, it was wild to see that while we were sitting here trying to build, you know, deep robotics, frontier tech like stuff in a pandemic when no one can meet and like, you can't be there in person. And so we had to build things and shit. It was like crazy. Um, and, um, yeah, so I think, and there's a couple companies out there that really stayed like heads down and and did the hard thing. And now I I completely agree with you. I think they're starting to reap the benefits of that. And then, and so again, I go props to the team for not getting distracted and yep. not you know staying true to the thing that really mattered here. Because you know without without all of them, like we couldn't have we we also couldn't have stayed sort of laser focused as well. So um, I could I could I could rant on about this no, one for a really long time because it's it, great. It just pissed it pissed me off i mean it yes. was and like, and again focus no we believe because of, like the efficient market hypothesis all of these things but then at the end of the day people right. can't like buy <laughs> buy high sell low people are especially the markets have always shown that people are panicky that they're herd animals that they follow trends the the rise of these meme stocks all of that stuff has shown that a lot of these decisions are not being made by a governing intelligence right it's just a greed and <laughs> shiny object syndrome so that's what makes the people like you and and to his credit Elon Musk even though he has many things in his personal life that I'm not such a big fan of but the people who do stay focused on something in a world that is constantly trying to distract you and constantly trying to say, hey, hey, Anthony, you could make more money over here quicker. You could be richer. You could drive a faster car. You could do this if you went over here. And to willfully tune that out is, I think, the greatest challenge of intelligent people of our time to to ask ourselves what is really important. Well, I'll tell you what's important. Energy is really important. Water is really important. Food is really important. But it's not Doesn't shiny. Doesn't take a rocket scientist. It's not shiny. No. It's not bright, and it's not blinking no. at you. So no. that and I celebrate that because, as we said at the very beginning of this, unfortunately, it's rare. And yeah, and yeah. it's and, also and good not to be to cynical Elon as well. Yes. Right? It's good not to be cynical and like, to just not throw your hands up and say we're screwed, but you've said, no, like, I'm just going to stay. And like you said, I'm not going to do these 10 things badly. I'm going to do one thing excellently. So I learned a lot from this. I know we've we've gone over, and I want to be very respectful of your time. I think you probably got a million meetings to go to today. 
Um, but this has been... I gotta go catch a train right now. Okay, it's, this has been <laughs> profound for me. I've picked up a lot. I'm just super grateful for you to brain dump here and share your thoughts and ideas. Uh, I am even more impressed with what you're up to having talked to you now than I was before just based on the output that I saw. Uh, I I wholeheartedly yeah. believe not only in your mission, but that you are the right person to do this. And I just very much look forward to watching your meteoric oh, rise great. in the next several five to seven years. Let's just say <laughs> five to seven years from now, I'll hit you up on LinkedIn and I got a feeling <laughs> you'll be doing something a little different. I don't know. Call it a hunch. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I appreciate all those words, Ross. And like, it's, it's also incredible what you've built. And like, I'm, I, you know, it's, you've impacted my ways in, in the past in ways that I didn't realize you had. Um, I did a little bit of searching and I definitely know what you've, what you've built and was a, was a fan. So, um, Awesome. You know, thank you as well. And like, cool. uh, maybe we can meet up in LA one time. Who knows? I would love that. And I still have to make yeah. a trip. I've never been to Boston. I keep saying I've got to get out there. So let's absolutely ah. do that. Uh, I'm, I'm leaving to New York right now. So. Okay. <laughs> well, right now, I'm on a next flight. No, cancel it. Uh, yeah. I'm over there. No, but it's, it's been an honor and a pleasure. And I, I really look forward just to staying connected. Um, and yeah, I'll let you get out of here. I know you got to go. But yeah, the, well, it just thanks, Ross. super honored. Um, and with that, the official podcast is over. 